Hey, it's your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flares here with another episode of the Lazy D&D Talk Show. In this weekly show, I talk about all things D&D. If you are a fan of this show, uh, if you're watching the show, this show is supported by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want to help support shows like this, you can do so becoming a, by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish by going to patreon.com slash Sly Flourish and signing up. There's also something else you can do for me, and you can do it right now, and it costs you nothing, but it helps. It helps me. In 10 days, I am launching the Kickstarter for the Lazy DM's Companion, whose uh, picture you can see right over there. This is a 64-page book of tools and guidelines and inspiration to help you more easily run, more easily prepare and run your own 5th edition D&D adventures and campaigns. I'm very excited about this book. I've been working on it a year. Patrons have seen a lot of the material that's going to be in here already. Uh, it's cool stuff. It's going to be beautifully laid out, well-edited, neat artwork, maps, all kinds of cool stuff. And the Kickstarter for that is going to launch in 10 days. That's Tuesday the 28th. But how will you remember, right? Like, we're busy people. We've got things going on. Things are going on in our lives. How can you possibly keep track of the fact that I've got this Kickstarter? Well, you can do so and help me at the same time by going to the Lazy DM's Companion Kickstarter page. The pre-launch page is already up. 1,983 other people are here ahead of you in getting their notification about the Kickstarter. But don't let anybody else get ahead of you. Go here and click on Notify Me on Launch. It's free. It costs you nothing. And it will let you know immediately when the Kickstarter goes live. And then you can get in on this because it's, it's going to be great stuff. There's going to be a lot of cool deals. If you've never picked up any of the other Lazy DM books, you'll be able to pick them up here. If you have the other Lazy DM books, but you are interested in getting them in a new style and a new format, they will be available here. If you want to pick them up and give them to your friends, you can do it here. But also you can get the Lazy DM, the Lazy DM's companion, which nobody has. But wait, there's more, says Mestigar. If you sign up and you notify on launch and you go to the Kickstarter page, you will be able to get... I think it's an 18-page free sample. You can download it right away. It's got lots of tools ready for you to help build adventures, lots of guidelines to help you run your games right off the bat. That's like, a third, what is it, 18 out of 64. That's 18 64ths of the book uh, in your hands. Scipio can tell me what that ratio is if you were to, if you were to limit it. It's 9.30 seconds, four and a half sixteenths of the book is available that you can put in your hands and use today. So all you have to do is go here. It would be really cool if during this show, while we're recording, that number, 1983, jumped up to 2000. Because round numbers, round numbers are awesome. Sunjammer says about 25%. That's probably about right. About a quarter of the book. So I'm giving away like a quarter of the book to everybody. I want everybody to have it. And the reason why is what's most important to me is that people have awesome tools to run D&D games. That's number one, right? I, I, I need the funding in order to make the book really awesome, right? And in order to do these shows, in order to do everything else, this stuff costs money. But really what I'm trying to do is get awesome stuff in people's hands. Wild Beyond the Witchlight, the new D&D uh, &D hardcover campaign. Wild Beyond the Witchlight is D&D's new, Wizards of the Coast's new hardcover campaign adventure set in the Feywild, starting off in a crazy circus and supposed to be full of whimsy and, uh, whimsy and, and zaniness. And I think that will, I'm hoping for a nice break from the 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 dismal darkness of Descent into Avernus and Rime of the Frostmaiden, the last two campaign adventures. I've run both of those campaign adventures. I've complained numerous times on this show about some design decisions that were made. And I am hoping that the design of the next one is really good. 
I've heard really good things about it. And certainly one major thing that I had is like having two adventures, one where you are descend into hell and another one where you're stuck in an icy frozen wasteland, both of which are like really dark, dismal, hardcore stuff. I'm, I'm due for some fantasy and some whimsy. And so I'm excited about this and, and we'll see. I, I will. So the marketing, whatever we can say about Watsi's, some of Watsi's design decisions, one thing we can certainly say is their marketing team is on the ball and they really know what they're doing. So the marketing for this has picked up quite a bit. There's the alternate cover, which I, I ordered. So hopefully the store, the, my friendly local game shop will have a copy of the, of the alternate cover. I have the alternate covers to every book except Theros, which is interesting. And that's okay. I don't really, I'm, not having the collection is there. Good, nice, beautiful artwork, right? Really cool, really cool artwork. Is you know, Pegasus thing. So I'm excited for it. I think it's cool. I'm, I'm eager. I will, I will have the D&D Beyond version this week and plan on starting to read it. Uh, this week, I'm going to have some some spare time to, to 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 dig through it. So that will be really cool. Yeah, and I'm excited for it. I will say, like, if I read it and I find things, I was talking about this on Discord today. If I read it and I find that I don't care for it, I probably run something else because I've I've felt a major drive to run the hardcover adventures back to back, and I'm feeling less of that drive. I don't know that that's the value that I bring to the world. Um, so, but I probably, I probably will end up running it. If you want to find out more details on, than the, the, the surface level stuff I did, my friends, Teos and Sean Merwin, Teos Abadia and Sean Merwin over on the Mastering Dungeons podcast, they have talked about it a, a lot and it's a great podcast. So I, I recommend subscribe. That's my number one D&D podcast, pretty close. Within the top five, other than my own uh, D&D podcast. It's a really, really great podcast. And they're very, two, two very, very smart guys. So really fun to listen to. So let's see any any questions. Probably aren't perfect adventure. Yeah, I don't expect it to be perfect. You know, and I don't I don't feel like what I was asking for from Descent into Avernus and from Rhyme of the Frost Maiden was perfection. I mean, some people might feel that way. I don't feel that way. I think there were things that would not have been very difficult to do, and I think that in the production of the adventure, because they had a lot of writers, because I don't know what the production process is like, things got sort of sort of fell through the cracks in production and made it into the physical adventure. And yet, the design and the marketing is all nailed it. So, you know, yeah, I'm hoping which light is different. We'll see, but check out. I'll I'll know more next week. So speaking of Teos Abadia, my good friend, and I say that absolutely, he is, a, he is a good friend. We have met many times in various gaming conventions. He and I have worked on projects in the past together. He and Scott Gray and I worked on the adventure uh, Vault of the Dracolich, which was the first fifth edition. It was actually kind of the D&D Next. First D&D Next published adventure, which you can pick up on DriveThruRPG. And we, so Teos is a very, very smart guy. I love talking to him. And one of the things that's interesting is he and I have areas, multiple areas, where we think differently about D&D. And... In some of these circumstances, I really think I'm right. So he and I have literally at least been talking about this topic for three years. And the topic is, as I like to joke about, does the difficulty class of a rope change depending on the level of the characters who are grabbing it? Right? That's that's kind of my tongue-in-cheek way of, of asking this, which generally is speaking about... A DM can definitely, DM definitely has the agency to change the DCs of things as they see fit. The question is, why are they changing those DCs? And are they changing it because the circumstance in the world has gotten more difficult? Or are they doing it to challenge the players? And so Teos and I talked about this a lot. We have, we have I think, four or five different 
communication pathways that connect the two of us. And on these various pathways, we will jump conversation on, on them and, and talk all the time. Sometimes it's just he and I, sometimes it's us in a group. But we talk a lot about this kind of stuff. And the, the culmination of those conversations recently came to a article that he wrote on his blog called For an Epic Hero, What is the DC to Pick a Lock? It is very well thought out, very good article. And you know, I have little nitpicky bits that I said, oh, I'll talk about that on the show. Because I'm not going to write like a rebuttal article or anything like that. I already have a couple articles on Sly Flourish where I talk about it, so I'm probably not going to write about it. But I could talk about it here in the show. So his general point is that there's essentially two, in, in Teos's false dichotomy, there's actually two different uh, ways to kind of think about this. You have, the world has an underlying truth that, that things exist in the world regardless of the characters, and they are a certain way. A rope takes a certain amount of effort to climb. The effort of that rope could be you know, out of one to 10, it could be a two, right? 10 being really hard, one being really easy, it could be a two, which means you have like a DC at 12, right? If you generally think about it, and the, and the player's handbook discusses this, that, you know, a, a, a quote unquote easy task is one that a normal person with no particular aptitude could do half the time, right? Climbing a rope probably is a little harder than that. So that's why it gets like a two, Right. Where picking a lock, if it's just a regular lock, a lock that you went down to the local blacksmithy and bought, has a 15. That somebody with no experience at all, but some thieves tools could maybe open that lock about a quarter of the time. One, one in four chance of opening that lock. That's what the book tells us. Right. And so his point is, so we know that a lock has a DC of 15. But what if you have 17th level characters and they come across that lock? shouldn't the challenge be higher because you want to challenge the characters, right? And this gets into the heroes of the world. A goblin is a goblin. A lock is a lock. The DC is always the same. And the goblin's challenge rating is always the same. That's one approach, right? And then in his other, he calls that the underlying truth. The world has an underlying truth, right? And then the other one that he brings up is the heroes of the world. That the world is, is bending its will around the heroes. That we are bending the world around the heroes to show them off so that they can have interesting challenges, so they can make great strides, so they, they can do interesting things, right? And I, you know, that's why I kind of say it's a false dichotomy because you can kind of do both, right? But it's not about bending the world around the characters. It's about bringing the characters to the part of the world or the part of the story where those kind of things make sense. So I, I, I bristle, bristle's a strong word. I bristle a little bit about some of the, the concepts in here because one is I don't think there's only just one lock, right? I don't think that there's only one lock that you buy at the general store. And if you are a local vendor who wants to lock up his, you know, 12 gold pieces for the night, you put it in your lockbox and you lock it with a DC 15 lock. And also Orcus, before he goes to bed, after he's watched Netflix, he takes his wand of Orcus and he puts it in his special case and he closes it and he gets his lock that he bought for whatever it was. 20 gold pieces of the local blacksmith. No, Orcus has a different kind of lock, right? He's got a lock that's made out of living bone, right? He's got a lock that's made from a demi-lich's skull. That is a different kind of lock, and that kind of lock is going to have a different DC to pick than your standard one. And that gets beside the fact that, like, it probably has other magical protections, like, oh, by the way, just getting up to the lock means you have a demi-lich staring at you trying to suck out your soul as you're on the way, right? Even still, even if you get past all the other parts of the demolich lock, it's still like probably a DC 25 to pick that lock, right? It's probably really hard. So different locks, right? There are some locks. There are bad locks that are rusted through that are only like a DC 11. And there are crazy powerful master locks that cost a thousand gold pieces to pick that the richest people in Waterdeep have put on their vault. And that lock is going to have like a DC 25. So I don't think the idea that a lock is a lock is a lock. No, the difference is I don't take the same lock and change the DC because the characters are there. I change the lock 
right? We start with what's in the world first and ask ourselves, what kind of lock would this circumstance result in, right? Where are they? Who put the lock there? And what kind of lock that they did? That's regardless of the characters. And if we're bringing the characters to the interesting parts of the story, likely they are facing people who have locks that are really good. But there certainly could be points where your level three characters are going through the vault of a rich person and it turns out they put a thousand gold piece lock on there and it's a DC 25 to pick it. That's going to be really hard for a level three rogue to pick. But that's the circumstance, right? He brings up goblins and skeletons as well. Kind of talks about the fact that goblin is a goblin and a skeleton is a skeleton, except, of course, when they're not. And I think the problem with that is that Goblins are an origin. They're, goblins are an ancestry. And I can certainly see circumstances where you could have goblin liches and goblin blackguards and goblin champions and goblin archmages. There's lots of ways you could have high CR goblins, right? Because a goblin, all of the NPC stat blocks that are in the monster manual are intended for you to bring an origin to them, including goblins or whatever. In the same way, uh, the same is true with skeletons, that if you look in the Dungeon Master's Guide, skeletons are a template that you can apply to other things. So you can also have skeletal dragons, you can have skeletal gladiators, you can have skeletal archmages if you want, right? I think, generally speaking. Th those two examples aren't great because they already scale, right? Those uh, things can be skeletal. We've seen skeletal frost giants. I'm going to run some skeletal frost giants probably today. They're going to be pretty badass, those skeletal frost giants. They are not your little de decrepit skeletons. So certain parts of the world certainly scale up, not because the players are a certain level, not because the characters are a certain level, but because the world, you, if you go to the island of Grimskull and you go down into the caves underneath and inside those caves, you come to the frost giant tombs, there's going to be frost giant skeletons there. It doesn't matter if you're level three. It doesn't matter if you're level 19. There's probably going to be frost giant skeletons down there because it's a frost giant tomb. Right? That's what makes sense. So I always start with, when I, when I think about this, very good article and worth reading. He, so I'll tell you a couple places where certainly, I think he and I mostly agree on this, but he moves challenge and mechanics, and, and probably not being perfectly fair, but we talked about it a lot. After this article, we talked about it a lot. And I think Teos is bringing challenge and mechanics ahead of in-story fiction, because he believes the in-story fiction is completely malleable. We can do whatever we want with it. So we can change these mechanics however we want in order to challenge the characters, which I get into. I think we're overweighting the importance of challenge, but I'll get to that in a minute. So he brought up an example of grungs, right? He took a screenshot of a, of a scene where you were negotiating with grungs. And in this scene, it talked about that you talked to the grungs, the grungs are apprehensive, and it had three different DCs. It had like a DC 12 for tier one, a DC 15, I'm making the DCs up, but it's pretty close to this. DC 12 for tier one, DC 15 for tier two, DC 17 for tier three. And in no other part of the description of your negotiation with the grungs, did it explain why the grungs would have been harder to negotiate with because you are 13th level versus third level. His point is, I want to make that scene a challenge regardless of what level the characters are. So the DC scales up and down. And that's, I don't, I'm not a fan of that design, right? I, I think that negotiating with Grung, unless there's a reason why the Grungs would be more apprehensive to negotiating with level 17 characters or level 13 characters than they will be with level three characters, it should be the same DC, right? And just because the characters got better at it doesn't mean the DC should scale up. And I think there's lots of areas where, I, so first of all, I bring this topic up because I think a lot of DMs go with that approach. I, I think we overweight challenge. We overweight the importance of saying, I want that scene to be stressful and interesting. I want failure to be a possibility. So I'm going to make sure that the DC is higher. 
and and they worry more about that challenge than they do about just like a conversation with grungs is going to be a conversation with grungs and it doesn't change and if it's easy that means the characters gain something with all of those levels and all of those attribute bumps and all those proficiency bonuses all the stuff they got that makes them, makes them better at that they're able to do I was talking to another designer friend who is uh, putting out a new product recently, and he wanted the product to be able to scale, I think, to all four tiers. So he had changing DCs. And like, I was joking with him, and I was like, what, do you have ropes that change their DC depending on who climbs them? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, why? Right? Like, first of all, if you're tier four, a rope shouldn't be a challenge. You'd be like, you know what I do? I take my whole group. We plane shift over to Azkaban, or Azkaban. We, we plane shift over to the City of Brass. We walk three blocks over. We plane shift back, and now we're at the top right? Like tier four characters of rope should not be a challenge. They probably have 13 magic ropes in a bag, right? They're, for hell, they'd be like, why am I even walking? I, I get my Pegasus. I fly over this thing. So you, the, the, the story about the tiers of play are very different. And I don't think you can just shoehorn them all into one scenario. I, I mean, people do. And, you know, if you're commissioned to write an adventure, Teos has commissioned to write an adventure that's scaled for all levels of play. Okay, that's different, right? I get it. I get it. But generally speaking, I'm not talking about people who are commissioned to write an adventure. I'm talking to DMs who are going to run games. And when I talk about DMs who are going to run games, what I think about is that the stories that we tell for the different tiers of play should be different. The scenario, the overall themes of what's easy and what's hard. And negotiating with a town guard doesn't get harder because you're good at it, right? It, it You know, when you're level two and you're like trying to talk to them it's one thing and then you have your bard come up later and he's like he strums his lute and immediately like touches the heart of the guard and they walk right past right that's that's how you scale up so yeah and and so galandrill says that's why i didn't like 4e lots of people have lots of reasons why they didn't like 4e i do think it's a big difference between how 4e played and how fifth edition played and i do think dms who have played a lot of third and a lot of fourth have had trouble letting go of that style and recognizing that we don't think in a microcosm anymore. We don't look at a situation and we don't have this pure linear regression line that goes up that says, as the players go here, everything else goes here. I th and I think, I mean, a problem, is it a problem? I don't know. If people are enjoying their games, they're enjoying their games. If people talk to their group and the way they group and played, great. I, I, I take a different approach. I recommend a different approach. And that's why I don't have encounter building guidelines where you start with Kobold Fight Club, you put in your character's level, and you look at what monsters are appropriate for their level. No. Instead, you say, where are they? What are they exploring? What kind of monsters make sense for this situation? And then, am I accidentally going to kill them or not? Right? Easy encounters are great. Go ahead and run easy encounters. They're fine. Right? Two bandits... Like having five 17th level characters getting attacked by two bandits, great. He actually brings me up. He brings me up at the very end. I don't know why I waited to the very end to bring me up. That's just rude, right? But at the very end, he says, you know, whether you're world scale or not, the situation should make sense. Mike Shea likes to talk about a high level adventure we played at a convention. We were at the same one where swashbucklers and bandit captains were robbing shops, right? And I was like, why would bandit captains and swashbucklers be running shops? You know why? Because it was tier appropriate because it was the right level characters for right level monsters for us. But it made no sense in this situation. Three bandits would have made more sense. And we would have dealt with three bandits very differently. We could have just yelled at them. And I bring up the counterexample to this, which is my friend uh, James Intercasso's uh, wonderful adventure, which is Invasion from the Planet of the Tarasks. And there's a great scene in that adventure where you're fighting multiple Tarasks in the middle of Waterdeep. And you look over and there's three bandits robbing a shop. And you get to decide what you're going to do about those three bandits. And you could just fireball them and they're all dead, right? But instead, I beheaded the Tarask I was on. I was naked. I was wearing a loincloth, my character, because he realized that, like, 
wearing armor is dumb because a Tarasque is going to hit you on a two or better anyway. So he just took off all his armor. He's standing there in a loincloth and a greatsword, and he beheads a Tarasque. Thank you, James, for letting me behead a Tarasque. And then I looked over at the bandits, and I pointed at him. I said, you guys, watch it. All right, and that was enough. That was an intimidation check, and they ran away. So in short, what are a few of my main points? One, I think that the DCs and the monsters and everything else, all of the mechanics that we choose for our game are secondary to the situation that's going on in the game, unless it's not fun. And this might be the, the, the weird bit, right? I'm trying to think about like the flow of this because I have like an equation in my head, kind of. And we start with what's the situation that's occurring in the world first? What mechanics make sense for that situation? We choose that second. But then when we're running the game, we want to make sure the game is fun. And we want to look at pacing and we want to look at beats. And if it's getting to be a drag, we can tweak those mechanics, right? If it's getting to be too easy and boring, we can tweak the mechanics the other way. Now, we don't do it all the time, right? We probably start with what makes sense for the situation. Go with that first. And if that works and it's fun, we're great. And most of the time, that should be the case. But there are times where you're like, wow, this battle is really dragging on and I wish it would be over quicker. And you just, you turn those dials. And there are certain dials that I think are really worth turning. Hit points, damage, number of attacks, number of monsters. Those are my four dials for a monster battle. You note, I don't say armor class. And armor class is kind of like a DC. And that's because armor in the world means something. Full plate armor has an AC of 18. So any monster that has the equivalent of full plate, like a boulette or an iron golem or something like that, has an AC of 18. And it makes sense for that monster. I think, I think iron golems are even harder than that because they're like made out of walking blocks of steel, right? So I don't tend to change armor classes. You can, I've done, I've, I don't tend to, I have, right? But I try to have an in-game reason for them to do so. An example would be uh, Helmed Horrors. Helmed Horrors have very high armor classes, right? But not a lot of damage. And I've had Helmed Horrors that when they reach a certain point, their armor turns red hot and begins to melt. And they now do extra fire damage when they hit, but their armor class has gone down a couple points, right? And that's because in the world, their armor's starting to melt and you can now break through their armor easier. So I tend not to, armor class is not one of the dials I turn. There are DMs who do because they say hitting things is fun. If things aren't fun and they're having a hard time hitting it, I'll just turn the AC dial down a little bit. I mean, you can. I think that's like making a rope change its DC because of the characters. I think that AC is something that I tend not to change. Hit points is really pretty fluid, right? Hit points is such a representation of like what's going on in the situation anyway. It's not about how much damage they took. It's about ex damage and exhaustion and everything else that... I think hit points can, can change. All of this gets to my next topic for the day, uh, which is the importance of pacing. I've played in hundreds, probably hundreds, low hundreds of Adventures League games and, and of, of uh, one-shot games at conventions and things like that. I've played with a lot of other DMs. I've seen a lot of other DMs. And I know myself and I, and I talk to people and I, I have a feeling, I, I have a feeling that pacing may be the number one challenge of Dungeon Masters. Proper pacing is the number, could be. I don't, I don't have a lot of pure data on this. But I will ask some questions to you, dear viewers, people here on Twitch. And you can say it in Twitch. Or if you're on YouTube, you can mention in the comments on YouTube. Or if you're on the podcast, yeah, you can. What I recommend is rolling down your window in your commute, putting your head out and yelling outside the window. And perhaps I'll hear it. If you've ever run a game and you've had more material 
left over than you wanted, than you expected to run. And that was a problem for you. You may have a problem with pacing. If you've gotten into the middle of a fight and realize that time has passed, that people are tired and it's time to go home, but you're in the middle of the fight and you don't know how to end it and you, and you let it keep going on, you might have a problem with pacing. You might have a problem with pacing if you get to that point and you say, well, you guys have done a great job here. We are going to, we're going to call it right here, right? And this has happened to me many, 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 many times. It happened to me this weekend, right? Oh, we didn't get far enough along on the adventure. Time is up, I'm afraid. Uh, we're going to have to call it right here. You guys did a great job. Here's your loot certificates, right? That's a pacing problem. What else are identified? A, a big one is like if if you lose track of time, right? If you realize, oh my God, the session flew by and I'm not anywhere I expected to be. I thought I was halfway through the adventure and I've got 30 minutes left out of a four-hour game. You have a problem with pacing. I think lots of us have problems with pacing. And I think it's for two two big reasons, right? So I'm using pacing differently. I'm just talking about pacing. I'm not talking about beats yet. We're going we're gonna to come to beats, but I think we're going to focus on pacing, right? There's a good reason why this happened. Not a, not, there's, there's a good reason why this happens. It happens because as dungeon masters, I think, I know I can speak from personal experience. When I am DMing a game, that is, that is flow. I'm in flow. There's a state called flow. It's a real thing. You can go Google this on, on Wikipedia and, and read about it. And a state of flow is when you've hit this level where you're proficient, you're really proficient in something and the challenge is high, but you're meeting the challenge and you're, you know, there's chemicals going on in your body and you, you literally lose track of time. You, time speeds up for you and you are enjoying it so much things are your brain and you're all synapses in your brains are flowing fast and it feels great you know basketball players baseball players you know gamblers lots of different people feel flow in lots of different ways and for me i feel flow when i'm running dnd i am on right i am engaged i there's no chance i'm gonna go read some social media stuff right? There's no chance I'm going to be able to, I'm going to get distracted by something else. I am, I'm zeroed in on DMing. It's one of the reasons why I'm so zeroed in on DMing and, and a pretty terrible player, right? I'm, I get very distracted very easily as a player. It's something I'm very bad at, still bad at. And, you know, but when I'm DMing, I'm on. And so the problem is in flow, one of the states of flow is losing track of time. And you lose track of time and, and all of a sudden all these things that you expected you were going to be able to run during your session, you can't run because things didn't go fast enough and now you don't have enough time. It's, it, it's not always a huge problem for home games that are continuous because you can usually find a decent place to stop, stop and pick up the next session, right? So it may not be that big a deal there. It is certainly a big deal if you have a certain pacing of your game that you want to meet. Like I, I want to do each chapter, each session or something like that, or I want to do one level every session. Then you've got, you're setting yourself on a time frame where you're going to do that. But one-shot games, it can be really bad, right? It can be a real problem in a one-shot game. I've seen some really good DMs who have managed this. So I played in a 13th age game yesterday. I was very lucky to be able to play a 13th age game. I was a bad player because I got distracted. I was, I was really interested for like the first half and then I, my mind kind of wandered a little bit, not because of the game. The game was really good and I wish, and I kind of had to keep drawing myself back in. But one of the things that the DM told us is, look, the bad guy's big plan is going to take place 45 minutes before the end of this session. So you need to make sure that you have accomplished whatever their goals are before that moment because at that moment, that's when the event will have occurred and you're going to be in a bad way, right? And, you know, great. Like, 
now it was, it was very much the same way that I run my Halloween Ravenloft game, right? That Strahd is going to show up 45 minutes before the end of the session. You better have the three icons before he shows up or you won't have them and he's going to be a lot harder, right? And it gives motivation. But the neat thing is that means it's bound. That means the adventure is bound and it's going to happen on time because things happen on time. Monty Cook has a book called Your Best Game Ever. Monty Cook Games put this out. So Monty Cook is the first time I read somebody who really like put a pin in this problem and said pacing is like the number one thing. And he says it in this book. He's got a quote in this book about, about the importance of pacing. So in this book, in uh, Your Best Game Ever, which is an excellent book, I highly recommend it. It's a, it's a book to help both players and DMs better enjoy their RPG experience. It's a really, really good book. I recommend it. I definitely recommend picking up the PDF. And, and lots of different stuff, but there's a whole section on, this is page 132. On page 132 begins a section about pacing. And there's a lot of talk about pacing in here, which I highly recommend. And one of the things that they say in here is like, there's no good way to do it other than have a timer in front of you. And I have one of my, one of my favorite DMs that I played with, a fantastic dude. And one, early on, he was the winner. I think he was the winner of the Iron Dungeon Master contest back in like 2012 or something like that. And that's where I met him, was there. And it turned out we lived nearby each other. We've been friends for years. And he sets a timer. He's got alarms that go off, right? And during the game, a little beep will go off and I'll go, oh, and he's just keeping track, like hour by hour, what's going on? And he's like, here's what the material that I plan on running and here's my timer, right? And it's like, you know, piloting a, piloting a submarine through the trench with a stopwatch and a map, right? He's got his map on one side, stopwatch, and he figures that out. And, you, you know, that's probably number one. Start using a timer, right? Set an hour, set a timer that goes off every hour during your game. And then when you're looking at your prep and you're thinking about what you want to accomplish, ask yourself, did I, have I accomplished what I need to accomplish? And most particularly, if you have an event that needs to occur before the end of the game, like a boss fight, set your timer a few minutes before the length of time you think that boss fight is going to take and make sure it goes off. And then as soon as that timer goes off, get them to that boss fight so that they have a nice moment at the end of the game to do that fight. Cut, yeah, plus one for the Hunt for Red October reference. Madsguard says, I'm studying time perception in my MMA, both flow, high challenge that can be met, and pure task difficulty, high challenge that cannot or can barely be met, would, be, would predict an underestimation of time. DMing is just a complex task that makes it hard to track time. Yes, I agree. Yeah, so DMing on its own, because it's hard, you're going to lose track of time just doing it. Should a lazy DM incorporate a time marker for the events NPCs they might meet? I, I would do a time marker for scenes. And I think the way to do a time marker for scenes is to generally expect that any given scene is going to take about 45 minutes. And that's on the average. A big battle is going to certainly take longer. And some conver quick conversation scenes might be significantly less. But if you generally judge that a scene is going to take 45 minutes, it gives you a general idea about how much material you need to prep and how much you can expect to get through. And I mean, we, we played adventure and a and really nice DM who really was very interested in us getting, getting a uh, good understanding for what was going on in the world. But I think he ran less than half of the adventure in four hours, right? And we, I kind of knew early on that that was going to happen. So I was like, oh, it's okay. I get it, right? We, we, we got some fun. We got to see some stuff. We, I, I got to play an interesting character. But boy, he had no idea what the timing was going to be on this thing. And way big overestimation of what he was going to be able to cover. And I didn't. Like, I didn't even know what the adventure was. I'm like, I know we're not getting anywhere. And we got to the front door of a big dungeon, right? So Falchon says, what is the advice then? Just end the scene they're currently in and force the characters to move to the next scene. N n ah, no... 
So that's why I kind of recommend keeping a keeping a clock cycle going during the game so you know what's happening and you have room to maneuver the adventure towards where it needs to be. An example in an Adventurers League adventure I played a few months ago is we were going off to go to war, I think. At some, we, we knew we were going to someplace to have a big war. And there was a whole big scene about us getting there that involved us like trudging through muck. It was, we were going through the, the Mornland, right? And so there's a big like Mornland travel scene that was like the oil scene in uh, Mad Max Fury Road. You're just slogging through and dragging stuff and things are getting stuck and we're getting stuck and you know all this stuff. And it went on a while. And then we had to cut off the boss fight right? We had to do a lot of exploration of the campsite we were going to. And then we got in a big fight there. And then we had, uh, but we never actually got to see the big war. And I was like, man, that, we never should have had that scene of going through the mud or it should have been narrated like that. And it was pretty clear to me when it was going on. Yeah, this, this scene is filler. And I bet you we could just go right past this. So when you look at that, you know, I think for the most part, if you're running a published adventure, you probably already want to be cutting stuff out of the middle. But that, that cut from the middle, like just skip scenes, right? The entire, you know, if, if it was like one, two, and three, if you have scenes of like one, two, three, and four, you say, okay, well, I'm pulling out scene two completely because it's just not that interesting. And scene three, I might get ready to pull that one out. We'll go through scene one. We'll see where we are. And maybe I go straight to scene four. Or maybe I do just three and four, right? But be ready to rip stuff out of the middle of your adventure if you need to get to an ending. Yeah, roll travel monologue, right? And they mentioned that in here. There's a whole section here on advancing time. And they say like, it takes you 10 days to cross the Mornland, trudging through the most terrible slush and slime and gore and muck, spirits all on the outside looking at you. You can just feel like, you know, you feel the tension just growing. And by the time you reach the war camp, you're, you're exhausted from your journey, not the not the exhausted condition, just generally exhausted. But you arrive, and be, you, you, because of your determination, you arrive and you manage to get to the thing, right? That took like a minute, right? And it covers 45 minutes of mechanics, you know? So, yeah. So I, the reason, one of the reasons I'm bringing out pacing here in this venue is because I'm still getting my head around the whole problem. I don't, I don't have a good, clean enough thing to do like a short YouTube video. I probably will. It's a hard problem though. So I'm bringing it up and I'm talking about it. And I think it relates to the thing about what that, that Teos and I were talking about because a lot of it is like what scenes are important for the characters. And I think that changes by tier. And that's where I think spending time having people roll difficulty checks to climb a rope when they're 13th level is not a good use of time. Like that's something you could rip out and say with your vast things, you get to the interesting part, right? Getting to the interesting parts, I think is like a big part of pacing, right? Making sure you look at it. This is why there is in, in media res. This is why movies will start in the action. The James Bond movie starts in the action, right? Cause having him doing a bunch of boring stuff, clicking on a computer, tracking people before he gets in a gunfight is boring, right? So they cut that part. So think about what you can cut. Think about how you can cut it. And a huge part of this is how do you motivate the players to move the game forward too? If they're stuck on stuff, how do you, how do you, you know, you're like the, the, the guys with the big shields in the Tokyo subway, shoving them forward, right? Moving them forward, getting that thing going. There's a lot of techniques here for that. It's probably a big, this, you know, this idea of pacing is probably a really big thing, but I think it's really important. I think as a DM, it's really important to think about, study it while you're in the game, think about your pacing, think about when, you know, what are the warning signs that your pacing is off? You know, how can you tell if pacing is a problem for you? I, I actually, this sounds egotistical as hell, 
but I think it's right. I don't think I have much of a problem with pacing. One is I generally am able to keep pretty good track of time. It's very rare for me to run an adventure over time. And if I am, they almost always get a warning before the end of the adventure. And I ask them, is it okay if we go a little bit over, right? That's very rare. Most of the time I end, I'm like Gandalf, right? I, I, I end my adventure precisely when I meant to. But I don't think, and I don't think it's Dunning-Kruger, right? Because I've run a ton of games, right? I've run games for 10 years. I've run more, probably a thousand games. So I don't think it's Dunning-Kruger that I think I'm better than I actually am. It's possible though. It's possible I, I have a problem with pacing. I'm not opposed to the idea that I do have a problem with pacing. I don't think I do though. And, and it's because I keep pretty good track of time. And I think I'm pretty good about moving things forward. But I don't know, right? I'm not, it might be hard. So maybe it's the kind of thing to talk to players about. But if you, you know, I think there are probably some key warning signs. If you continually find yourself like, oh man, I had this whole battle plan that I didn't get to it. That's probably a pacing problem. If your game goes over on time, if you go, oh man, we're 45 minutes over, you definitely have a pacing problem. If you find yourself saying, we're going to end the battle right here, right? If you, if you cut off battles in the middle of the battle, you probably have a problem with pacing, particularly if you do it in the climax of a game, if you do it in the big battle, you got a problem with pacing. So I think there are some key specific things you can look for and say, yes, this is an issue and it's an issue in my game and there are ways for me to handle it. I'll probably put together an article. I already have an article. I wrote it and it's only like a year old, but I'm probably going to update it and I'm probably going to do a video on the topic, but I wanted to talk about it today because it's something that's definitely been on my mind. I hope you've enjoyed this talk about pacing. Let's talk about Shadow of the Demon Lord. So I like to do, I don't think they're not really a review. I've, I've come to the conclusion that these, these, these flip throughs that I do are not reviews. They're more of a flip through or I want to say preview, right? They're a, they're a look, right? I don't know what to call them, but I, I'm, cause I don't review them because I don't go like in depth. I, a lot of times I haven't read the full thing. A lot of times I'm just kind of, this is my impression. I guess impressions, right? Spotlight, right? The difference is Shadow of the Demon Lord, I have actually read. I've actually run it. I've run, 11, I've run an 11 session Shadow of the Demon Lord campaign for my group uh, and really liked it. And so I wanted to kind of pull back. I've been looking at other RPGs. I've been looking at other things. I looked at Esper Genesis recently. I've talked about Mjorkberg before. I've certainly talked about other RPGs. And I thought, why not Shadow of the Demon Lord? I really love Shadow of the Demon Lord and I would, I would really love to, to talk about it. So Shadow of the Demon Lord is a D20 RPG. So Shadow of the Demon Lord is a single book D20 based RPG written by Robert Schwab. Robert Schwab is a designer for many editions of D&D. He's been writing for D&D since third edition. He wrote for third, he wrote for fourth. He wrote on the one of the freelancers that worked on fifth edition. He has a lot of experience in RPGs and he loves to dive into the dark and dismal and and brutal and body horror aspects of of fantasy RPGs. He wrote the book Elder Evils, a third edition book called Elder Evils, which covers which covers uh, a lot of like the crazy big evils of the world. And he took all of this experience he's got and he poured it into this book called Shadow of the Demon Lord. Shadow of the Demon Lord, to start up front, it is a opinionated RPG with a very particular style of blood and gore and demons and devil worship and all of the things that are that your parents might have warned you about or worried about when you were playing D&D, like Mjorkberg, this book's got it, right? Short of you're all going to put robes on and dance around candles and talk about casting the real spells. There is definitely, like, I was thinking about it on, on my walk today. 
And I think there's probably not many lines in, if you think about lines and veils, or you think about like in Monty Cook's Consent in Gaming, there's a list of like, what are the potentially troublesome topics that can come up in RPGs that you would want to be warned about before you ran an RPG? This one's got them all, right? This one has them all. And you, if you were going to run this campaign for your players, you want to be sure that your players are on board with it. You would want to discuss it ahead of time before you even get into lines and veils or, or safety tools in general. Before you even get to that point, you really want to say like, hey, let me tell you about some of the themes of this adventure, some of the highlights that it's got. Is this interesting to you? Uh, I was lucky that my group said, sure, we'll give, it a, we'll give it a try. And there were still aspects where I'm pretty sure we danced on the edge of things that players were not comfortable with. We're all adults. We've all been playing RPGs for a long time. We are all, you know, we, 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 we tend, you know, this isn't an oversensitive group. We are, you know, we've played a lot of stuff and still we got into content that was just like, why are we doing this, right? I've played Shadow of the Demon Lord and other games with Rob Schwab. One of my favorite experiences, James Intercasso and I uh, both played in the same game with Robert Schwab. And I made the mistake of saying like, we want the full, full frontal Schwab experience. That was a mistake. I made a mistake. The next, and, and James and I have things that we share that we're not going to talk about with other people <laughs> from that game. Likewise, Later, we played Shadow the Demon Lord, or we played a different RPG with Robert Schwab, and Schwab said, so, you know, what do you want? And I said, on, a, on, the, on the scale of full frontal Schwab, I'd like about a two, right? On a scale of one to 10, I'd like a two, please. And I remember Schwab trying to describe things, and his eyes were flickering up and down as he was going through his giant Rolodex of descriptions until he got to the point where he hit descriptions that were at a two and then had to use that, and it was hysterical. It was... Yeah, we're big talkers. Okay, here we go. Right. It was a it was an experience. My point in bringing this up is there is a lot of content. There's probably going to be content in this review in my spotlight here that could be troublesome. So just be careful. There's probably some blood and gore and guts and terrible things, poop jokes, all kinds of things that are going to be coming up in this review. That said, Rob Schwab is a fantastic designer, uh, and he's a tremendous writer. He, I've, I've heard people at Wizards of the Coast who have said, like, nobody writes like Schwab writes, that he can pour out content. And having been a backer of the Shadow of the Demon Lord Kickstarter, I laughed because one time I met him at a convention, and I said, Rob, please, please stop sending me stuff. Like, you're just filling my hard drive. I've got, like, 100 products from your Kickstarter. Just stop, right? And it's because he put out so much stuff. I don't remember how many PDFs I got from like my sixty or eighty dollar backing of his of his of his Kickstarter, but it was a lot. He publishes a lot of material, and we'll, well, I'm going to talk about that because I love his material. So the cool thing is the core book for Shadow of the Demon Lord is a complete RPG in in one book. It has all of the things you need to be a player in the game, all of the things you need to be a DM in the game, all the advice for how to DM the game. It has a whole bunch of monsters and it's got a whole setting book all in one book. The one thing that he clarified that it doesn't have that a book like 13th Age does is it doesn't have a starter adventure in the book. And his argument for that was he didn't want the book to become obsolete the minute you ran the starter adventure. That it, what he, his thought was you know, if there's a starter adventure in the book and you've run it, well, now th those are 12 pages you can't use for anything else, right? And that's a good point, right? I thought that was that was a good point. I, I probably still would have had one, right? I still think like, because the one, the one purchase 
you know, the one product purchase is really a good idea. Though. Like, here's your book. You have it and everything you need in there, including an adventure, even if it's a short one, right? Even if it's just a, just a, you know, just a starter adventure, just a starter adventure. I like it. The book, one of the things that, so this book introduced me to Jack Kaiser, who did a lot of the art in this book. I don't know which pieces are Jack's. I don't know if this is, I don't think this, this is a Jack Kaiser piece or not, but there's certainly Jack Kaiser artwork in this book. And I, I met Jack through this. So I, I saw his work here. I thought it was outstanding. And I reached out to Jack and said, how would you like to do the cover? And next thing you know, he did the cover for Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, right? He did Fantastic Adventures first, but then he did Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, a bunch of other art. Fantastic dude, Jack. So character creation wise is they, he does a really wonderful, I, I, so I talked about the cipher system. I talked about Numenera a couple weeks ago, I think, right? And I talked about how in Numenera, you could sort of mix these three variables together to get very different kinds of characters, even though it was all compressed into a small piece of the book. And the same is true with Shadow of the Demon Lord. Uh, Shadow of the Demon Lord has four, uh, five? Five main aspects to your character, your ancestry, your background, which I yeah, forget where it is here. So, so yeah, a bunch of different ancestries, clockwork dwarves, elves, goblins, a lot of cool ancestries, right? Look at that. Yeah, so that, that's almost certainly a Jack Kaiser piece. That looks like Jack Kaiser. That's really kind of cool stuff. Orcs as a, as a level. And so, okay, so profession. So you have your origin, right? Your, your ancestry. You have a profession, which is kind of like a background. The difference is like your origin gains things when you hit certain levels. There are 10 levels of play, zero through 10, right? So 11 levels. And at zero, you just start with a profession. And that's like your, your main job, right? What is your, what is your starting profession? Are you a criminal? Are you an academic? And there's a lot of them. There are a lot of different things that you can be, right? A lot of different professions. And your profession gains things as you level up, just like your other, your other things do. So all of your things, your ancestry, your profession, and then there's uh, three tiers of classes. And which I'm going to get their name wrong. So let me go to the table of contents and, and look at that here. So you have your ancestries, uh, human, changeling, clockwork, dwarf, goblin, and orc. You have your professions, and there's many, many, many different kinds of professions. That's sort of your starting job in the world. And that begins your first level character, right? Then when you hit first level, you have a thing called a novice path. There are four novice paths, magician, priest, rogue, and warrior. Very, very typical. And those have sets of mechanics that are tied to them. But then uh, when you get to, I think it's third level, you get to your expert path. And there are uh, like a dozen different expert paths. These are more closer to the D&D &D classes, full classes, paladin, scourge, sorcerer, spellbinder, thief, warlock, witch, wizard, lots of them. And then they're like one, two, three, 16 of those, right? So now, and the interesting thing is any of the former novices can pick any of the expert paths. They don't have to be in line. It's not like a subclass where the subclass is tied to a class. It's like subclasses that you could pick regardless of what class you have. So think about the multiplier on that. Think about all the different professions now, all the different novice paths, and then multiply that by all the different expert paths. And then when you hit, I think it's seventh level, you get mastery, master paths. And master paths are like prestige classes in third edition. They're, they happen later in your character's career. And there are dozens and dozens of them, right? Look at all of the ones that are in here, right? Huge pile of them. They all have their different powers. And again, all of those can be mixed up with any, any novice path and any expert path. So you now have this huge multiplier. It's almost like saying everybody's multi-classing. 
right? And when I ran it, so so th- when I when I played it, there were some really interesting things that happened from this. One is we could have no prediction about what kind of characters the players were going to have because they were mixing and matching all this stuff together. And by the way, this is just in this book. He's got tons of other material with many, many more paths and the many ma- more master paths, many more expert paths. So the game has exploded out in in number of options that are available and yet has stayed bound enough that as a DM, I never felt like the game got completely away from me, right? It wasn't like getting it to 20th. Because it's only zero to 10th level, the level range is relatively limited and, and the math stays in more control because of that. So that was all, you know, it meant that we got really, really rich characters. And it also meant that things like the jobs that players had, the, the, the what are they called? The professions that they had, those professions mattered throughout their entire game. Right. And it really worked the way I ran it, which is the way that the game recommends you run it is that every session you gain a level and that the campaign is a zero to 10th campaign, which means you're going to finish the game in about 10 to 11 sessions. And that's what I did. And it worked out. It worked out really well. Monsters are much more flat in math and the encounter building I found to be different, but easier than doing encounter building in fifth. He has a lot of neat techniques in here for how to do monster balance and building monsters the campaign world is all about the fact that the world is ending that an elder evil some kind of powerful huge horror is coming and it's about the world tearing itself apart why this thing is coming almost all of the campaigns happen that way gaming bs says how long is the average session i ran three hour sessions but three to four hours is probably about right so it's pretty quick, right? And that's why I said, like, we're, I'm going to make sure each session is its own little adventure. I had to worry about pacing. And I would do a montage for the, each character would do a montage about what they did for the like three days in between sessions. And a lot of that was based on their on their professions, right? And then we would do another one. And then every time they would be leveling up. So they'd level up between sessions and then they would have a little montage in between about what they did. And it was really neat. People really liked it. My, my players were really, my players, I think, really dug it. And I really dug it. So yeah, so the books just got tons of tons of really great stuff. The, the, the spell section gets a lot of attention because the spells are really, really grim and brutal, right? Lots of lots of different kinds. There's many different kinds of spells. These they're sort of referred to as traditions, right? And there's all different kinds of spells uh, that fall under traditions. In fact, he did a whole other Kickstarter that was just a book full of other powerful spells including a bunch of spells that went beyond what the characters could get so that your your monsters could get them and wow they were dark there was one spell it was a it was like you know the equivalent of like a 10th level D spell and once it was cast it killed everybody under the age of 18 and sterilized everybody that was 18 and older it, its whole goal was to just wipe out a civilization right wipe out an entire group it was like so grim right that's the kind of stuff that's in this game a lot of body horror a lot of body horror in the art too i'm not showing a lot of the art because i want to be careful a lot of body horror in the art a lot of body horror in its in its design really dark game but if you're into that it was a lot of fun i loved running it so the main book uh, you can get the pdf uh, you can get it on drive through rpg 19 bucks uh, it is often a lot of times shadow of the demon lord or has it has in the past showed up as a as a, bu- a, bl- a bundle of holding and you can usually get the pdf plus a whole lot of stuff for a pretty good price so if you're looking for it uh, all of the content is pretty grim yes he is apparently working on another game called shadow of the weird wizard that is a less grim version of it uh, because the system is so great i would really like to see that but it was supposed to be he was supposed to work on it this year but i haven't seen it so i don't know where it is i have played it i've played playtests of it and it's really good 
Although the playtest I played that was the 10 on the Schwab meter was of that system. And it was still really gory, but that's because it was Schwab. So 19 bucks, really, you know, definitely worth 19 bucks to pick up the core book. And you could probably get in a, in a bundle of holding tons of his material. And the material is really good. And I think the material is really good for other RPGs. So, you know, these, these are, he doesn't write like big campaign source books. Instead, he writes shorter PDFs. This is an eight-page PDF about one city called the City Blood. Here's a guy with his head ripped off right in the art. That's, this is pretty tame. This is like a five out of 10 on the grim art meter, that this guy getting his head ripped off by some weird demon, demon gladiator. He writes a lot of these sort of supplements that can cover like one city in the realm. And I love this idea. It's a really, the material is really, really great. Terrible Beauty is his take on the Feywild. Really great. Hey, look, another guy with his head, head removed. I loved this book. I used it in the campaign that I, that I was running. I really dug it. Another one called Black Sun Dawn, which is about a dark cult. And I, the cult of the Black Sun. I loved this one so much. I, I used it. It, it. it inspired a lot of the kind of stuff I threw into Grendel Root, particularly the, the, the Black Star, the cult of the Black Star that I had in mind. Really cool stuff. Cool just, you know, lots of supplements that he has. Tales of the Demon Lord is a book of adventures. This is a whole campaign path that takes you full of full thing. I use this as a general outline for the one that I ran, but I changed a lot of stuff. Lots of material. And then he has like these, these two page adventures that are like a buck. You can go and buy them for a dollar. And they're, they're really, they're really good, you know? So, so neat, neat stuff. You know, Quintet, here's an adventure that I used for one of them that's about hell more so than, 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 than the abyss and devil or demons and stuff. And uh, yeah, Blasphemies for Borb Wallish was a thing that he did. Those are spells from Shadow of the Demon Lord that he converted to fifth edition. Uh, so Quintet was actually written by my friend Scott Fitzgerald Gray. He wrote this adventure about a uh, secret devil-worshipping cult that has opened up, and now there's devils running around underneath an old temple. Really cool event. Look at that map. Isn't that map awesome? So I really dig the material. I, I, I got tons of it. I really liked it. It was, it was really fun, and, and I recommend it. If it's got a cult in it, Mike's going to like it. That is very true. I like cults a lot. Cults. I never feel bad killing a cult. So that is Shadow of the Demon Lord. Highly recommend it. Really fun RPG. I didn't get to talk about it nearly as much as I want, but I want to talk about Scipio's question. If I'm going to get one question today in, because it's already, you know, close to the end of the time, right? We're hitting, hitting the end of time. So patrons of Sly Flourish can submit questions to me. Uh, I will look through these questions. I find questions that I think are interesting and I bring them and we talk about them on the show or I do videos on YouTube about them. So if you're a patron, take a look. I have a Q&A. One of the posts is questions that you can ask. Uh, go look for that one and you can uh, talk about it. Yeah, I've got a pacing problem. I have a pacing problem in my show. You are correct, sir. I take it back. I have a pacing problem. That definitely doesn't happen in my game. So it just happens in this show because I get excited. I want to talk about Shadow of the Demon Lord. I, got, I spent so much time talking about pacing that I ran out of time. So Scipio202, my friend Scipio, says, a lot of both improvising a scene and thinking about a campaign development is about understanding the motivations of your NPCs to decide what they would do in any, or say in any situation. What do you find to be the most useful types of motivations for NPCs? Does it vary based on what role you have in mind for them? Major antagonist, mentor, rival, potential ally, just flavor, etc.? Yeah, the tr so the truth is I don't think a lot about NPCs. I think more, so I think having like roles for them, you know, is important. And then starting off with what's the role that they're playing in this campaign? Are they a patron of the characters? Uh, are they just an information giver? Are they a herald to a villain? Are they a villain themselves? And then when we kind of put them in those 
types of NPCs. When we think about those types of NPCs, that can drive a lot more about like what motivates them and stuff. I think that we, I think by and large, we probably over-engineer NPCs. On the other hand, it's possible I under-engineer them. It's probably, my, my NPCs might end up being hollow. And they might be hollow because I, I don't give them the attention that they that they deserve. I do feel like a lot of RPG prep material, the Dungeon Master's Guide and, and elsewhere, a lot of random tables offer too much information about an NPC. You know, do you really need to know that they've they've they they mourn their long lost daughter who ran off and became an adventurer and got killed in a goblin thing when they're selling you a healing potion? Does that really matter, right? I mean, maybe it does, and maybe it comes up, and maybe you can improvise that. So I think trying to find the material that helps you improvise an NPC quickly is useful. There, I think there are there are times where you'll run into random tables to generate an NPC where it's just got too much stuff, right? It's too many roles and too much stuff to build an NPC. There are certainly good NPC generators online. I, I've got one that, that I've used. I think I, I built it or I stole it. I probably stole it. You know, where just yeah, carefree, neutral, good uh, dwarven cultist. Hey, look, a cultist. But they're a good cultist wearing a gray robe, right? Josian. So, you know, I, I have like a quick one to help me sort of improvise an NPC. It just gives a couple of, you know, a wide-eyed lawful good elven priest wearing a purple tunic, right? Real simple. One-line NPCs. An obnoxious neutral good halfling veteran wearing a breastplate and carrying a battle axe. Walden. That's pretty good, right? Like, I, you know, I go with this. I'll paste this. This is my NPC generator, and I'll make sure to put this in the show notes as well. So I don't, I, I don't, you know, getting back to the question... I, I don't pay too much attention to their motivation. It's a good way to go. And of course, you know, what I, what I recommend is still what's in Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, which is if you want a rich NPC, just think of a, think of a character from fiction that you like. Maybe switch the gender. I, I, this is my, my trick is to switch the gender on them and then uh, run them that way. Right. And then what you, you have them. I, you know, I always joke about like Al Swearingen. So you go to a bar and there's a female Al Swearingen who's, who's running the bar. And right off the bat, like, I know everything I need to know. I know that she's got a secret band of groups. I know that she sends robbers out to go rob people. I know that she's been here a long time and built this place by herself. And, you know, is really and that she's not she's neither exactly good nor evil. It's all about circumstance. Right. She might be evil or she might be good. Maybe she's murdering the young woman who witnessed the crime, or maybe she just murders all of the bandits that she saw, right? But she's like, I'm cutting it off one way or the other. So you can come up with a really rich character by just grabbing grabbing somebody from fiction. You know, if you have a show, like I have Deadwood is my show, but you, you know, other people can have their show that has a lot of different characters in it. You could just sort of keep those in hand, right? And you can constantly say, oh, what if I just took this character and switched them and they become like this? To me, that is a that is an easy an easy way to build kind of a rich character. Is grab one from fiction, switch the gender, and 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 then go with what they have, right? When you need one, villains are a different case. Villains, we get into the whole front idea: what's the villain trying to do? What are the steps that they're gonna, you know, what are the steps that they're gonna take to get there? How it, you know, what, where did they come from? You know, the, the, the steps for kind of doing villains as fronts. Yeah, Firefly. If you want characters, grab them from Firefly. It's great. Pick one. I actually think it's kind of nice if you just bookmark one piece of fiction that's got a few of them in there and put that in your head. That way you don't have like this Rolodex of 5,000 character archetypes. You only need a handful, right? And you can probably do them over and over again. So, Vio, I hope that answered your question. It's been like three weeks since you've been answering it. Uh, I'm going to answer one more. I know we're running a little late, but I want to answer one more question. I want to do at least two today. Uh, so, Step Back. Step Back. I think Step Back is often here in chat. I don't know if Step Back is here today. Uh, I hope so. 
Uh, Stepback says, I love the talk. I love the talk about fronts. Hey, we're talking about fronts. Uh, I love the talk about fronts and portents and the like, and I want to use them more. A couple of questions about how to implement them. One, I have two long running campaigns right now. Would you recommend adding them midstream? And if so, how would you do it? And two, how do you decide when a front moves forward with its next step to trigger the portent? Good, good questions. The first answer is yes, absolutely. You can do fronts anytime. Fronts evolve, right? So you can bring in three new fronts. You can stop in the middle of your campaign and say, ooh, who are the three fronts right now, right? I could do it right in the middle of my Rhyme of the Frostmaiden game. And it's kind of good to do that because it sort of resets you and says, okay, who are the fronts now? The fronts are, you know, this group, this group, and this group, right? And the fronts can change. They should change, right? A, a lot of times entire fronts are going to disappear, right? Entire villains are going to disappear. And when we're talking about fronts, what are we talking about? So a front is essentially a, often a villain. I actually am trying to get away from the nomenclature of front and trying to get to villain. And then I just expand the definition of villain to include things like a meteor strike or an earthquake that's going to come, right? But a lot of times it's a villain is a conscious thing that's trying to go against you. So the villains, you think about the villains of your campaign. And, and it's, it's, it works to think of three villains. You have three major villains that are doing things in your campaign. They all have goals, right? What is the goal that a villain is trying to accomplish? What are they doing that's putting them in the way, that's hurting the land that the characters need to get involved in? What are they doing? The Frost Maiden is trying to freeze over all of Icewind Dale, right? Thrun is trying to escape from his coffin down underneath Yethrin. And who's the third? Oh, and Zardok, Zardok Sunblight is building a weapon to destroy all of 10 towns, right? His goal is to destroy 10, all of 10 towns. And then you say, what are the three steps that they're taking to accomplish this, right? And you drop in three steps for each of those, each of those villains. They have these three steps. And ideally those three steps, as they accomplish them, it, the characters become aware of the fact that they've accomplished this. Zardarok Sunblight is stealing Shardalon in order to build his weapon. So they, the characters hear that people are stealing Shardalon. Then eventually they're not stealing Shardalon anymore. Then they hear the hammering that's hammering under the mountain. They know they're building something. And then the hammering stops and they start to get grim portents of uh, a huge machine that's being moved in that, you know, that's the third. And then finally the thing is gone, right? The thing is, the thing is underway. So you have those three steps. So the answer is yes, absolutely. You can bring them in in the midstream. You can always bring them in. You can always kind of stop and say, what are my front? What are, what are my villains doing right now? The very, you know, I promote very heavily on this. Stop, stop for a minute and ask yourself, what are the villains doing right now? How do you decide when a front moves forward? Well, it, you, you, you kind of decided we were talking about pacing, right? And, and campaign pacing, they move forward when it makes sense that they would move forward. They move forward when it feels right. Sometimes you might decide that like, you know, what makes, what, what works for the story? What there's kind of two angles. What makes sense for the world? What makes sense in the world? When would they do it? And two, when, what would be fun for the, keep the campaign kind of moving in the right pace. And in some cases, like a front, a villain doesn't move forward until the characters do something just because that's the kind of the fun way that the campaign could be, could pace out. But other times it might just happen. And, and I'll give an example when I switch over to the Frame of the Frost main game. One of the major fronts is moving forward. I've, the characters have seen the, they've seen the fact that, the, that the, the, the villain's steps have been getting accomplished. And they chose to go a different path. That is going to have a repercussion. They are going to miss all the way. It's not going to get all the way to the end, but they're going to hit that third one. And they're going to come back and go, oh my God, this whole thing got away from us, right? What are we going to do? So that that's kind of how they can move forward. But yes, you can you can do your fronts at any or yeah, villains, right? Villains and fronts are synonymous in my mind. You can you can reset your villains at any point. You can 
Think about what three villains you have right now at any point in your campaign, and then still think about what are the steps that, what are they trying to accomplish and what steps are they doing? And none of it is hardwired. And of course, all of those villains and goals and steps evolve and change as the characters get involved in the situation, as things change in the situation. Uh, one, ex one, one kind of extreme example is you can think about Princes of the Apocalypse. And in Princes of the Apocalypse, there's actually four fronts, the four elemental cults, right? And while the characters are busy dealing with one cult, the other cults are fighting with each other. And then once they deal with the second cult, the third cult gets destroyed by the fourth cult. And the fourth cult's enterprise is the one that goes further along. All of the cults, the, the balance between the four cults changes as the characters start to wipe them out, right? Or start to break their start to break their plans. And then until finally there's one left and they've had no resistance because all of the other ones were wiped out and now they're able to bring up an elemental prince and that's how the game kind of works. And it's it's fun. That's, that, that was a fun way for that campaign to work. It's unfortunate they kind of bury that in the campaign. It's hard to find that that, that that's how that happens. But it is written in there and it and it, it's a really cool way to run it. So you can think of it that way too. Are your, are your villains competing with one another? And if one of them is being thwarted by the characters, does that mean the other ones have an easier time getting forward? That, that's kind of an interesting way to do it. Step back, I hope I answered your question. Uh, it's a great question on fronts. It uh, looks like we have another question about fronts uh, that I'll have to save for next time. But yeah, really, really, really good stuff. I want to thank everybody for hanging out with me this morning on the D&D Talk Show. Again, if you want to help me out, there are four things you can do to help me out. One, you can subscribe to this Life Flourish newsletter. Two, you can support me directly on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash lifeflourish and signing up. Three, you can uh, subscribe to my videos on YouTube. Four, you can pick up any of my books, including Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master or the Lazy DMs Workbook. But the number one thing you could do for me right now is go to the Lazy DM Companion Kickstarter preview page and click on Notify Me on launch. Let's see if, what, what the number is now. Let's see if, we, did we break 2,000? 1990, 10 more people. If 10 more people noti get notified, then it will jump up to 2,000. And that's a nice round number. And we like round numbers here at Sly Flourish. So please take a look at the Lazy DM Companion page. Click on Notify Me on launch. You will be notified when the campaign goes live. You'll be able to go access a free 18-page preview. And... Hopefully you'll get excited about what you see and be willing to back the Kickstarter. The, the, just to get the companion itself in PDF will probably be about 10 bucks, right? So for $10, you can get what I've been working on for a year. Really excellent, you know, really excellent uh, book. I think you'll, I think you'll really dig it. So thank you all very much for coming and have a great day.